Turn your Bibles to Acts 19, verses 1 through 3, or rather 7, our text for this morning's sermon. Uh, we read in verse 2, the Apostle Paul asks these, uh, these uh, disciples in Ephesus, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That's quite a remarkable statement. And um, in the history of the church, uh, there's been something of a swinging of the pendulum. Uh, on the one hand, of those who, for whom everything is about the Holy Spirit, even at the expense of, of uh, sort of minimizing the, the voice of Christ, as it were. And so we can go back to the ancient church, and there were the Montanists and the Donatists, and you can come forward into the 17th century, and you have the Quakers, and uh, then in the 19th century, you have the, um, the Irvingites, the follow followers of the Scottish minister, uh, last named Irving, and, and you had the Cane Ridge revivals uh, and, and so forth. And on into the 20th century, there was the Toronto blessing in the 1990s. And then, you know, we're hearing some of the rumbling e even, even today where tremendous emphasis is being given to the, the Holy Spirit. The problem with most of these movements is that they have ended up into some form of extremism or another. Uh, and then there's been this reaction to the, the extremes, uh, to uh, what you might even call a fanaticism that has resulted from some of these movements, uh, to where there's no mention of the Holy Spirit at all. Uh, where the, where we don't, we don't hear anything about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't know of the, of the part that the Holy Spirit uh, plays uh, where uh, God is not even personally interacting with his people. It takes on even kind of a form of deism where God is remote and distant and uninvolved uh, in creation itself or involved in his, his people. Uh, so this passage has been used to, by one group or another in order to support its, its ends and has resulted in either on the one hand this kind of extremism and on the other hand this form of, uh, of deism. Uh, where does the balance lie? Uh, well, some of you might be surprised to know that uh, it's been suggested that Calvin should be known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Definite article, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, why? Because he took uh, the church away as the primary agent of the application of redemption, and he, he, he attributed that work directly to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we have this formula that we use. Uh, the Father planned salvation, the Son accomplished salvation, and the Spirit applies salvation. Salvation is, is a Trinitarian work. What the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies so that the Holy Spirit is understood as the agent of application. He takes what Christ accomplished on the cross long ago and far away, right? 2,000 years ago across the oceans and far off Middle East. He takes that and working through the Word, he applies the, those benefits to us here and now in the present. He is the agent of application. In the church I grew up in, it was a gospel-preaching church, believed in the full authority of uh, Scripture. I heard the gospel preached every 
Sunday, but I don't believe I ever heard anything about the Holy Spirit. So uh, that was even the case among faithful churches. Uh, maybe things were said, maybe in my childhood and youth, I just wasn't paying any attention, but I don't recall the Holy Spirit ever, ever uh, being um, a part of the, of the teaching of uh, the church. So we don't, want to mis- we don't want to repeat either one of those mistakes. Uh, we want to rightly understand the passage before us so that we avoid the extremes of these, of these uh, Holy Spirit movements that have gone off the rails and uh, of the deists who have uh, sort of jumped ship in the other direction. So verse 1, uh, we get some of the background to our passage. And it happened that while Apollos who we just read about in the verses preceding the beginning of the 19th chapter. Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and and, uh, came to Ephesus. So he's traveling from the east to the west. He comes to Ephesus, which is on the coast uh, there of the the Aegean Sea, uh, the sea across from uh, Greece. Ephesus was colonized by Athenians in the 11th or 12th century BC, it was established as a trading post and it thrived for literally four centuries. However, over time, its harbor was silted by soil erosion and uh, today Ephesus sits seven miles, that's seven miles of soil erosion, seven miles inland and it's virtually uninhabited. However, uh, during biblical times, It was the home of the cult of Artemis, or Diana in Latin. Uh, The temple in which she was worshipped was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Thousands of pilgrims came there every year with their money. Uh, The degree of prosperity and popularity of Ephesus can be measured by the fact that there uh, they, they had built a theater that could seat 25,000 people. And some disciples, it says in verse 1, are encountered by the apostle Paul at the end of verse 1. There he found, there in Ephesus, he found some disciples of John. But he discerns some deficiency. Something is amiss with these disciples. And as he discerns what's missing, there's some important lessons for us. So, lesson number one, we learn of the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit. Verse two, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, so this is, this is, this is the classic answer. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, the normative thing is you believe and you receive the Holy Spirit. That's what's behind the question. There's this connection. If you're a believer, you've received the Holy Spirit. The two go together. You believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, There can be no exception to that. Everyone who believes receives the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul uh, probes further. He says, uh, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. He's probing their experience. And he sees that they have a connection with John, that's John the Baptist, uh, but they don't have a connection with Jesus. They were not baptized into Jesus. 
So he probes further. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. Uh, so what he's saying to them is, do you not realize that John's baptism was preparatory? John's baptism was anticipating the arrival of Jesus, that John himself said that. And John himself said that when Jesus came, he would baptize not merely with water as I am, but with the Spirit and with fire. Uh, do you not realize that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, as he calls it here? Um, but if you want forgiveness and you want the cleansing that the baptism, the waters of cleansing represent, that only comes with faith in Jesus. See, John was preparing the way, this baptism of repentance. Uh, but that baptism of repentance was in preparation for what Jesus would do when he would baptize with the Holy Spirit uh, and, and that for those who would believe and they would receive forgiveness and cleansing. And so with the problem with these disciples of John is that they have failed to move on from John to Jesus. They were John's disciples. They were not Jesus' disciples. Presumably with the baptisms, uh, whether of Jesus or of John, that you receive instruction along with the baptism. And, and so they would have been instructed by John. They would have been taught by him, but they have not been taught by Jesus. They have not been instructed by him. They are not disciples of Jesus. They are not believers. That's uh, the situation. And so uh, Paul pursues uh, things further. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to what? To believe. To believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So uh, just to pause to a question we want to come to uh, at, the, at the end. Uh, the question of the passage is, have you received the Holy Spirit? That's a good question for us. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Has uh, the Holy Spirit regenerated, transformed your heart? Have you been born of the Spirit? Are you indwelt by the Spirit? Uh, are you empowered by uh, the Holy Spirit? Uh, the question is not, do you attend church? Uh, the question is not, do you have some kind of, of uh, a vague belief in God? Uh, the question is, have you received the Holy Spirit? Christianity is a supernatural religion. There's this dynamic of the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this personal contact with the Holy Spirit, this, this personal interaction with, of the Holy Spirit with our souls. That's what was lacking with the disciples of John. They hadn't moved from John to Jesus. And so Paul then leads them to faith in Christ and with that, the reception of the Holy Spirit. So, so number one, we see the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit. Number two, what I want to underscore and really return to what we've already said. Number two, the Holy Spirit is received when we believe. So in verse four, those who are identified as disciples of John are instructed to Believe in Jesus. Verse 5 says, on hearing this, what? That they should believe in Jesus. 
What follows then is they did believe in Jesus. And so they were baptized, and so they received the Holy Spirit. So this is question number two that we'll return to again at the end. The question is, do I believe in Jesus? So note, the disciples of John, they're very religious. Right? They would be church-going people in our situation. So they're very religious. They are they are repentant. They understand that they're sinners. They've recognized publicly their sin. And they received John's baptism, which was a baptism for repentance. A baptism for repentance means that one is repentant. Uh, one understands that one is a sinner. One is repentant of that sin. They had done all of that, and yet that is inadequate. Why? Because they hadn't moved on to the one that can forgive their sins. And it's, it's unfortunate, I think, that that's not unusual. I don't think that's uncommon uh, for there to be people connected with the, the people of God, connected with the church, and who have some relationship with Christianity, like these disciples of John. They had some connection with Christianity. They had heard what John said. They didn't, they didn't quite understand it. They seemed not to have, have understood or learned about. They seemed to have gone back to Ephesus uh, before the cross and the empty tomb and Pentecost. So they, they, haven't, they need an update. They, 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 they hadn't gotten the, 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 the more recent news. And I think that that's not an uncommon condition, even today or all through the centuries, about people who believe in God, but they've not moved on to Christ. Uh, they even may understand that they're sinners and understand the need for, uh, for the forgiveness of their sins, but they have not gone from there to Christ, to the cross, to the empty tomb, to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Christ by putting their faith and trust in Him and surrendering their lives to Him. They've not gone on. They're like the disciples of John. In some vague way, they believe in God. In some vague way, they're connected with the people of God. In some vague way, they, uh, they know that they're sinners, but they have not looked to Jesus to save them. Uh, that's, uh, I believe, a correct uh, analysis of the situation that we see here. Forgiveness is only to be found in Jesus Christ. Now, we need to digress twice. So you're going to need to hang with me here as we do so. Digression number one. There are others, uh, namely uh, Pentecostals and their fellow travelers who have interpreted this passage as saying there are two stages of Christian experience. There's uh, the first stage where we believe and we uh, are saved and they would say that's, that's the condition that uh, John's disciples are. They're called disciples after all, therefore they, uh, they, they must be really believers. And they, they've only gone, come to the first stage. And they would say, well, this is, a, this is the common thing that they see, is that there are saved people who haven't had this second work of grace, this second blessing, uh, which they would identify with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they would be urging all to go on from the first stage of salvation where your sins are forgiven and you're pardoned and reconciled to God, go on to the second stage where the fullness of the Spirit is received. And so that's what they would be urging for us, and that's how they would understand this passage. What's the problem with that interpretation? Well, I don't think it makes sense of what we've just seen. They're instructed in, to believe in Jesus, and it's only when they believe in Jesus 
that they receive the Holy Spirit. Moreover, Romans 8 9, among a number of passages we could look at, anyone, the Apostle Paul says, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You belong to Jesus, you're, you're, you're a believer, you put your faith in him, you have the Spirit. There's an inseparable link between saving faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's, in, it's invariable. Uh, there, there's never an exception to that rule. You believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, digression number two. Uh, the same Pentecostals and their s fellow travelers would say not only are there two stages of Christian experience, that is of salvation on the one hand, the baptism of the Spirit on the, the other hand, but that this second stage further is manifest by speaking in tongues and the various and, and, and sundry other, other um, signs. And so they have a bit of a, a, strong, a stronger argument because here in verse 6 it says they began to speak in tongues and were prophesying. So what do we have to say to that? Well, we say to that what we, what we previously have said to that, which is that the signs of Pentecost, the speaking in tongues and in other words, the gift of languages and, and, and other sign miracle gifts were repeated on behalf of marginal groups who otherwise full membership in the Christian community might have been denied. All right, so, so for example, the Samaritans, chapter 8. The Gentiles, chapter 10, where it's repeated three times by Peter, and then a fourth time in Acts 15, that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just as we did. That happened without observing the ceremonial law. Uh, that happened without the washings and the cleansing. That, uh, that happened without the observance of the holy days. In other words, those Gentiles were full members because they received the Holy Spirit just as they did without observing the law of God just like Jews did. So their full equality was proven by this parallel uh, um, phenomena of the Spirit that could be visibly seen and testify to their equality within the Christian community. So it happened in Samaria, it happened with Cornelius and the Gentiles in chapter uh, 10, and it's happening here with the disciples of John the Baptist. These are external signs confirming the full membership of these marginal groups within the Christian community. So strengthening this argument, we don't find these sign gifts of tongues and prophesying and so forth in connection with anyone else. So the Ethiopian eunuch, no. Saul, the apostle Paul's converted, no. The church at Antioch, no. How about the 11 other cities that the apostle Paul visited in his three missionary journeys? No. Uh, there's, a, there's a phenomena in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But it, you know, the question, is that the same thing as going on in the book of Acts? It, 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 uh, it's, it doesn't, doesn't seem, the whole debate about what, what exactly is going on in, in 1 Corinthians uh, so, uh, is, uh, is uh, this second experience of grace 
accompanied by these signs of tongues and prophesying. Is that meant to be normative, ongoing, in the life of the church? Uh, we would argue based on our understanding of this passage and the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, no. Uh, with the, the normative experiences for the believer is to have faith, to receive the benefits of salvation, including the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and those who come to faith as adults would then be, receive water baptism. Spirit baptism, water baptism, faith, repentance. Uh, these are the normative experiences of the Christian, and all those benefits are received at once and then formalized by water baptism. And that these, uh, these exceptional signs are called in 2 Corinthians 12, trial by the Apostle Paul, signs of the apostles. Signs of the apostles identifying their, their, their gifts and then these others, like we say, uh, establishing the, uh, the right of these groups over whom a question mark had been raised as to whether or not they were accepted into the Christian community as fully equal members uh, along with Jewish believers. And the, the answer to the question, yes with the Samaritans, yes with the Gentiles, yes with John's disciples, and for all who put their faith in Christ. So let's go back to the heart of the matter. Number one, do I believe in Jesus? If I have a deficient spiritual experience, you know, somehow it just, uh, it, it, it's empty, it's formal, it's, it's uh, cold, then we need to do what the Apostle Paul does here, and that is we direct you not to the Holy Spirit, but to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's task is to glorify Christ. It's to highlight Him. It's to draw people to Jesus Christ. And so the question of the passage is, do I believe in Jesus? He alone is the Savior of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, and, and, and so, even among those who are in church every Sunday, those who every week are warming a pew, who every week are repeating the Apostles' Creed, or repeating the Lord's Prayer, or singing the doxology, or singing the doxology, or singing the, the Gloria Patri. Uh, the question is not, are you religious? Uh, the, the question is not, do I feel some guilt? Do I know that I'm a sinner? Yeah, because everybody sins and we all have our faults. No. Uh, do you know that you're a sinner in the sense that you have turned to Jesus Christ and put your faith in Him and trust in Him? Not do you believe in God in a generic sense, but do you believe in Christ in a specific sense? Is He my Savior? Is He my Lord? So, do I believe in Jesus? Number two, have I received the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's presence is the confirmation that our faith is genuine and saving. 
I repeat, Christianity is a supernatural religion. Christianity is an experiential religion. It is a Christ-centered religion. So, being a Christian is not the same as or even like belonging to a civic organization. It's not, uh, I, I don't join the church because I want to do some good things, like, like I might want to do in a civic organization. Uh, being a Christian is, is not the same thing as adopting a philosophy of life. It's not, it's not uh, the same as somebody coming around our congregation and saying, you know, you people seem to be fairly conservative. Um, uh, I want to com support conservatism, so I'm going to join the church because uh, I have conservative views myself. It's not the adoption of a philosophy. It's not even the adoption of a moral code. Uh, even though in saying that, I understand that that if you become a Christian, that means adopting the moral code, and the moral code is going to put you at odds with the, the, the trajectory of our society today. There's no question about that. But becoming a Christian is not the adoption of a moral code. Uh, becoming a Christian is not the adoption of a philosophy of life, even though Christianity has a philosophy of life. And that when, when, when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, that Lordship means that, that uh, our life begins to be directed. And so there are certain priorities then that follow, and there's a certain perspective and outlook on life that, that is, is a result of that lordship over us so that life then begins to move in a given direction with certain commitments and certain priorities. Nevertheless, that, that's not what makes a person a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So go, going back to these uh, first century disciples, Paul saw that something was lacking. What was lacking in these so-called disciples? Devotion to Christ. They were very religious. They had repented of their sins. But there wasn't the devotion to Christ. Christ was not at the center of their faith or their experience or, or their religious commitments or their repentance. And like I said earlier, how I wish this was uncommon, but it isn't. There are far too many for whom the commitment is a commitment to the church in some kind of vague way, commitment to God and the recognition that I'm a sinner and even repentance in some vague way, but it never seems to connect to Christ. And so for that first century group, Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. Where was the fruit of devotion to Christ that was mi missing? Paul perceives that. He then realizes they put their faith not in Christ, but it's still back there with John. They'd gotten to the porch of Christianity, but they hadn't gone through the door. Paul wants to get them through the door, so he, he, he leads them to faith in Christ. He knows by the absence of devotion to Christ, how would, what would we look for today uh, among those who are true disciples of Christ? We would look for, well, devotion to Christ. There would be a Christ-centeredness that would be characteristic of them. But as... Again, Jesus said, you'll know them by the fruit. We would look as well for the fruit of the Holy Spirit because an encounter with Christ is transforming. 
the fruit of the Spirit being Galatians 5, love, joy, peace. Where are those? Are they present? Are they, are, are they, are they present and growing? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Uh, there should be progression in these. There should be growth in these. More and more, uh, a person who has truly received Christ by faith and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit will be manifesting these fruit of the Spirit. That's why Jesus can say you will know them by their fruit. They will be transformed. They will become different people. They will become new creations in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old will pass away. All things will become new. This is what happens. We rejoice in it. We don't want to remain as we were, slaves of ourselves and our own interests and our self-centeredness and selfishness and our own cherished sins. We don't want to remain in bondage to them. We want to become new people, new creatures in Christ. We want to be buried with him in baptism and raised up in newness of life. So those are the questions that come from this passage. Uh, do I believe in Jesus? Is he my Savior? Is he my Lord? Have I surrendered my life to him? Am I living under his lordship? And have I, am I indwelt by the Holy Spirit? And are there signs of that? Are my priorities changing? Are my commitments changing? Is my outlook changing? Do I have a new perspective, a Christ-centered perspective on life? Are the fruit growing? Not, not am I perfect. Paul's not a perfectionist. Uh, the Bible doesn't expect perfection from us, but it does expect progress. Not perfection, but progress. So that sin is being mortified, it's being put to death. Righteousness, holiness is growing. And the love and desire for holiness is growing. And for greater conformity to the image of Christ so that we might follow in his steps, so that we might love as he loved, loving sacrificially, loving even our enemies. Uh, this is uh, how we understand the the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes the benefits of Christ, secured long ago and far away, and he brings them across all that space and time. Working through the word brings them to bear on us in the moment, in our salvation and in our sanctification and transformation. So these are the, the great questions. They're really the, the questions of our text, they're the questions of the New Testament, they're the questions of the Bible. Have I received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and am I indwelt and, and, indwelt and, 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 and sanctified and, and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to live a life that is pleasing uh, to Almighty God as we pray together? Our Father in heaven, we uh, we pray that in each one of our lives uh, the fullness of your gospel would be realized in salvation and transformation. We pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us all with power and raise us up to live a new life. In Jesus' name, amen.